from the blood supermoon and now we're back on the dark side of things the moon hiding from us in the sky but there's lots of light since we're getting closer to the summer solstice here so what's shining for you uh, what's shining for me is the beautiful work of Maria Alejandra Barrios which I am going to be sharing with you today and the music of Juliana Lachance from her album Golden Spring Fever. Uh, so I've got uh, lots of luminous things for you today. So let's get right into it. This first piece by Maria Alejandra Barrios was published at Waxwing. Two Crosses. Every woman in our neighborhood knows that if you're not sure if he's going to marry you, go to Valdivia, the woman of the two crosses. Stuck between two lovers? Valdivia. Confused about his hot and coldness? Valdivia. Wondering if you can get pregnant at all? Valdivia. She'll see you in her house, say a muted prayer that only she can hear, and she will tell you what you need to know. But you wonder if the question you have is asking for far too much if she has the same clarity with spirits as she does with the living. The word sticks to your tongue. Valdivia. Soft like the spring the countries below the equator don't have. Soft like what you imagine spring is like. Flowers that bloom and are softened by rainwater, and flowers that when you touch them feel like cotton. When you go to see her, you get scared that someone will see you entering her house and tell your deeply Catholic mother. You sit in front of her, and you wait for her to say her famous prayer that no one can really hear, but that people think summons spirits. Your friends have described the process, and it makes you less nervous. You know she'll take the black notebook and write your questions down with her neat little handwriting, that handwriting that resembles ants. You tell her your questions. One, two. Next to each question, she draws a little cross. Neat and black like the rest of her words that blend together in front of you. You put a hand on your stomach. Valdivia. You say the word in your head. The authority the name contains calms you. You only know what he had told you about pines and springs, new beginnings in other faraway places. You close your eyes wondering if you know anything else. When you leave Valdivia's house, you see the fresh rain on the streets. You smell it, the water on the pavement and on the air. You walk home with a broken spirit and a rosary that Valdivia gave you as a souvenir. 
It's Palo de Rosa, she said. Someone brought it to me from Rome. You take care of it. You take the rosary to your nose and you smell it, but it doesn't smell like a rose. It has a faint smell of pines. But you wouldn't know. You know the smell of roble de oro trees and mataraton trees, but you have never been inside a deep forest. You open the door to your room, relieved not to see Mami or anyone else around. One of the questions was how Mami would react to the pregnancy. Would she kick you out? Valdivia wasn't sure, but she said that you would be okay no matter what. Pray, listen, she said. You closed your eyes and prayed that you had the strength to believe it was as easy as that. You leave the rosary on the bed and you throw yourself next to it. You examine it. Valdivia, the woman who said that she didn't have answers about the dead, only about the living. A rosary, prayed beat by beat, was your best chance to talk to him. Valdivia talked about the faraway land where the ones who are no longer with us go to. You close your eyes and you wonder in which puerto he's arriving now. You touch your stomach and you unfasten your tight skirt. In your insides, a new beginning. You place your palm looking up, following Valdivia's advice, as if you were telling the universe you were ready to receive. In you.
That was Juliana Lachance with Glory to the Glory of the Sun. Things Never Stay Warm. This was published at Fractured Lit. I wear my dead sister's lipstick around the house like Grandma told me to. It leaves my lips dry and the shade doesn't suit me. It's purple and dark and velvety. Against her golden brown skin, luminous and edgy. On me, it looks tired. Most things do. But I wear it anyway to sit in the kitchen while I do the trick that Grandma taught me to stir the soup with my mind. Grandma was a witch. She turned the neighbor's hair red, one hair at a time. The neighbor didn't notice at first, but she started to see it around the house, and she even started thinking her husband was having an affair. One, two, three red hairs in the drain. Soon all her hair was red like the autumn leaves. When my sister died, Grandma gave me a bag with all her clothes. She told me to wear them often and with oomph, like my sister would have. She assured me her scent of sweet candied apples and vanilla cloves would lead her back home. But I never see her. Most days I imagine her perky voice on the phone when she was still alive and still loved me. Sis, you are always busy. You never have time for me, your lazy sister who lives at home with Grandma. And I would laugh and tell her not to be silly. She would find her own way. But back then, all she wanted was to be with the baker's son who couldn't bake baguettes. And I, with nothing else to do when I went home to visit, would sneak out with him to throw rocks at the shore late at night, drinking mezcal and keeping the neighborhood cats company. He was the only man my sister ever loved because she liked the way he pronounced words with a vaguely French accent. And she liked how his hazel hair was always too long on the sides while sitting heavily on the top. She liked his knitted sweaters, too, and she liked how they always smelled musky, sparingly washed. Sis never forgave me, and she never figured out a way to move out of Grandma's house. She died, and Grandma, not ready to live without her, followed. And now it is only me, who came back home to try and sell the house when there was no one around anymore to shut my computer down and tell me, Enough, silly girl. Sit here and eat some cinnamon cookies while they're still warm. Things never stay warm. Which is why, in this empty home, I wear her cheap purple lipstick and sing the song that Grandma taught me to sing to turn on the heater using only my words. The house feels warm and inviting now, and the leaves are changing. They both love the golden light and crunchy apples, and although I don't know how to bake a pie they would like, I close my eyes like Grandma taught me and say the words that open her recipe book and flip the pages until it lands on pumpkin pie. The cupboard's open. Flour, sugar, butter, a can of pumpkin, and a whisk appear in front of me. I stand up and start to stir. I'm not in the mood for lighting a candle for them in the little altar I built with all their little keychains they like to collect of places they would visit one day. Not tonight. Tonight, I am in the mood for eating mediocre pumpkin pie and sitting on the couch while I hear the screaming cats and the serenade that the baker does two doors down in the hopes I'll hear how much he's hurting. Sis, I say, just in case she's listening, I never cared that much about him. I think he stinks, like dust, cigarettes, and cheap whiskey. The kitchen window opens, and the cold breeze makes my chapped, dry face burn. Grandma would know what to do for that. Sis, I say. 
but the wind hits the window and closes it back. That was Juliana Lachance with Black Magic Wizard. This next one was published at Hobart Pulp. Anything but tongue. Abuela raised me to eat brains. My cousins were raised away from her house and from her food. None of them had to eat the cuts Abuela used in the kitchen. Brains, tongue, and kidney that we would mix with Papa Amaria, paprika, and brown sauce. They, in their wealthier houses could eat anything they wanted that was different from what their parents grew up eating. Brains, when they are fried, don't taste mushy and soft. They are tender and flavorful, like most battered things. Tongue was a nightmare. When I was little, I thought she was feeding me a human tongue. I gagged, thinking I was eating my own. It felt slimy and soft. Anything but tongue, I would beg. But Abuela insisted. She would present me with grilled tongue, Tongue with white sauce and herbs, almost burned tongue. Pa dentro, she commanded, eat it. And I would, because I had to. Grandma would send me containers to Bogota full of kidney and Papa Maria. I moved away from my hometown to the capital to study in a wealthy university, courtesy of an uncle. Education for the little orphan, if life awards her with nothing else. Serve with rice, Abuela would tell me later in a phone call. I made enough kidneys for you and your friends, she said. Don't be greedy. I never told anyone I liked kidney. It was shameful. 
People of a certain class didn't have to eat like that, like Abuela and I did, while the rest of the cousins feasted on filet mignon and lean cuts. It was dangerous to eat like we did, like one was hungry enough to eat the whole animal. There had to be a difference between one and the beasts. Winter in my homeland meant heavy rain and dry soil, floods and crops that are so unsatisfactory they leave entire towns hungry. Winter in this tucked-away town, away from Abuela and the cousins, was long, dry, and nights heavy with ice-cold wind. I met my fiancé in Bogota, and he invited me to live with him in the States. I knew English, but I didn't know about life in other countries. I didn't know about the customs and the way that when one orders a simple plate of breakfast in a diner, the dish has enough eggs, bacon, and toast to feed at least two very hungry people. I didn't know about waste and about eating canned soups. I didn't know about how food could fill the void that humans had before. Abuela didn't want to come to the wedding. I'm tired, mija, she said. Marry here. I want to, Abuela, I said, but his family can't move, I lied. So she came on an airplane with my cousins and uncle and took possession of the kitchen in our spacious American home. Just like the movies, she said, unimpressed. Aha, I said, covering her frail shoulders with a velvety eggplant color shawl. Two nights before we married, Abuela cooked kidneys with rice. She moved slower in the kitchen, but the smell of the sizzling onions and bell peppers sprinkled with paprika still had the power of invading the whole house. Abuela, I kissed her on the cheek, let me help. No, her thin frame shivered despite the heating. Her skin had only ever been subjected to the humid tropical heat. The cousins ordered a pizza. She didn't care. That was a battle that she had lost long ago. She made me translate. Tell your fiancé to try. It's my granddaughter's favorite. With him I tried at first not to keep secrets. So I told him, kidneys are my favorite. Abuela and I ate. The dish smelled just like in my memories. Abuela looked at him the whole time while he cut the pieces of slippery brown meat and tried to put them in his mouth. The food lingered on the fork longer than it needed to. No like? she asked. Her broken English traveled across the dinner table. Fiancé looked aggravated. He didn't want to offend. You don't have to eat it, honey, I said. I stood up and took the plate away from him. His olive green eyes looked away from Abuela's hawk gaze. One of my cousins opened the pizza box and brought him a cold pepperoni slice. Abuela has been dead for a couple of years now, and although she never stopped doing anything while pregnant, she didn't even stop drinking aguardiente. I don't follow Abuela's footsteps. I stopped eating kidneys while pregnant. Even though I had warmed up to the buttery and slippery taste of tongue by then, perhaps by how it reminded me of her, I stopped eating that too. One day my husband phones me to tell me he's eating dinner in the town's pub with a friend. Don't come too late, I say. It might get too snowy to drive. He reminds me he has his big American yellow truck with its big chain tires. Dinner is ready. I sit my toddler in his chair, and I tell him in Spanish to open up wide. I put a plate of kidneys, served with Papa Amaria and rice, in front of him. I eat alongside my child, and when he spits it out, I wait patiently and feed him more. 
pa dentro, a command, eat it. Eventually he chews. When he does, I scratch his head of coarse black curls, and I tell him about all the things that Abuela fed me in order to teach me how to survive. That was Juliana Lachance with Fertile Ground Revival. Dirt. 
This was published at Smoke Long Quarterly. In nightmares, I arrive too late. Abuela dies and I hop on a plane. Too late to say goodbye. Too late to hold her hand. Too late to hear her last words. Too late, as always, for everything. So, of course, this comes true. I book a flight and I tell my boyfriend not to come. Really, no, it's okay. And I call Mama, and she doesn't pick up. And I stay in my childhood home that smells like comohen and the hair lacquer Abuela would use to hold her low silver bun. And I curl up and sob and cry, cry harder and hate myself. And I call Mama again, and of course she doesn't pick up. And then voicemail, voicemail, and more voicemail. Because who picks up the phone for a mala hija, for the prodigal granddaughter that isn't paying enough attention to come back at the right time? At the funeral, everyone tells me how sorry they are. She raised you, they say. Your abuela, a saint. The neighbors swarm in a big dark mass, trust in luto, reeking of sweet imported cologne. They want to know about my life in the States and about the boyfriend in our apartment. Do you think about kids? Are the winters as cold as they say? Have you visited the Statue of Liberty? Your abuela always wanted to live to see her grandchildren. I'm sure she and Diosito are watching over you. I'm sure she'll watch over them. I touch my stomach, as if they can see something that I can't. Mama didn't even call me much in Abuela's last days. I wonder if she expected me to guess, to sense that the tumors had gotten too much for her chest to handle and fly over, but I didn't. I was always too busy. Even when we lived in the same country, we never had anything to say to each other. All I remember from childhood is this guy or that guy with the big arms or American candy, the one rumbling off in a yellow jeep. I see her when we're all walking to the gravesite for the ceremony, draped in black, eyes covered in gray shades, and I want to wave, make myself big. Mama, Mama, here. I'm waving, I'm calling, I'm here. But she doesn't look. She hides in others. She cries and turns her head. She touches the ground, threatening to throw herself onto the grave. Mommy, Mommy, don't leave. Mommy, take me with you. Mommy, I touch her shoulder. She flicks away my hand as if I am a fly. Mommy, I try. Mommy. Her eyes study the dirt. Mommy, I say. And now Mommy abruptly stands. She puts her hand on her face. Mommy. That word that Abuela said was too big for her daughter. She could never be a mother. I have no memories of her putting me to bed or of her reading me a story or of her helping me with math or even playing outside with me. I would always play alone at home, where Abuela's veiny legs wouldn't have to walk too far to fetch me. I stand behind her and I see her wild hair that spreads on the wind like biblical snakes. I take a breath, and I imagine her telling me she's sorry. I see her stretching her arms so I can put my head to her chest and close my eyes and disappear. But she never turns back. Her eyes are fixated on the priest. I put my arms behind her, hold on to her tight, and squeeze until I'm strong enough to lift her up. She gives in, airless. Mommy, I whisper, but her body goes rigid. You couldn't wear something longer for your abuela's funeral, she says, as she brushes the dirt off her long skirt. 
I look at my bare knees. When I was a teenager, Abuela would scold me and Mama for going around in miniskirts. We would catch a cold. No one would take us seriously. Mama and I would look at each other and smile, kiss her on the cheek, and tell her that we were grown now. We could fight someone if we had to. I don't own anything longer, I tell her under my breath as our neighbors throw flowers on the coffin. After flowers, more dirt until Abuela is covered. My feet start tapping. I want to go and I want to stay. I reach for Mommy's hand and when she turns to me, I see the wind whipping the fabric free from her legs. That was Juliana Lachance with Golden Temple. This next one was published at Jellyfish Review, Black Cake. <laughs> 
Did you know that to get black cake right, you have to leave it five days and five nights to rest before putting on the icing? Abuela asked me while I sat in the kitchen, licking my cake-battered fingers. I was little then, and didn't really understand Abuela's cake rules that she had imposed on our family. When you're done mixing and baking the cake, you have to spray it with wine and then rum, not the other way around, and then you let it sit for as long as it needs to, Abuela instructed. Do you understand? I nodded, but I didn't know what she was saying yet. Five days was a lot. Everyone in the family tried to speak to Abuela about how five days in the fridge was a long time. There were other cakes to store, and with so many wedding cake orders, there was barely any room for anything else. But Abuela was always right, so she would say five, and that was that. Abuela started a cake business back in the 80s. Back then, Mama insisted on going to wedding parties with her so she could steal a piece of the black wedding cake and shove it in her purse. When Mama got home, she would put a slice of the cake under her pillow. When Abuela did the laundry, she would see the light blue and pink icing on the white laced pillow and a coarse black hair belonging to Mama covered in cream. It was not a secret to anyone that the only thing that Mama wanted then was to marry. It's not a secret now, a couple of husbands under her belt. And yet, Mama, who never fails to eat all the cookies on the counter, and who eats a piece of dark chocolate religiously every day after lunch, can't eat black wedding cake anymore, for it has brought her nothing but bad luck, and me a parade of stepfathers who do nothing but sit around eating the food in the fridge, calling Mama names and starting fights over cold food and clothes folded wrong. Bite after bite of black cake over the years still hasn't afforded her a dream of the right husband. Mama starts making wedding cakes for business after she finds my abuela's notebook with cake recipes. I question her because she doesn't want to try the batter, so how is she going to know if they're any good? But she smiles and tells me to have faith. If your abuela had her magic touch for baking, I should have it too. The key is in the flowers. So she spends days and nights loosening her wrist. She squints at late hours of the night so the petals of the icing flowers turn out delicate instead of clunky. She learns how to mix colors so they don't stand out but complement the cake. She never tastes the cakes, but encourages me to try them. I bet it tastes just like the ones your abuela used to make. I swear these wedding cakes are like a time capsule. Mama opens her golden purse and reveals a perfect slice of wedding cake with a classic white icing flower on top of it. For you. How was the party, I ask, and open the fridge to look for a glass of milk. We walk to the living room and sit on the couch cross-legged. My abuela would hate seeing us sit like that, like little children instead of grown women. Mama says the party was beautiful, with a live orchestra that made the room vibrate with the sounds of trombones and the tuku-tuku of the tambores for merengue. I can smell the whiskey on her breath. When Mama goes to sleep with all her clothes on, I hide in my room with the piece of cake in my hands. I put it under my bed and close my eyes. The smells of butter, cream, and powdered sugar lull me to sleep. I hope to dream about something else, but what I dream about is abuela in a kitchen that existed way before I was born, manipulating cake batter with her own hands, saying that it was the only way for cakes to turn right. I see her with her straight black hair down to her shoulders, so right before she would divorce my grandfather and cut her hair short. 
Around the time when Mama came home from school and told Abuela she had been kicked out because her parents didn't sleep in the same house. I see Abuela ordering me around, telling me to mix faster. A cold breeze wakes me up, and I see Mama opening my window. I couldn't sleep, she says, so I baked a cake. We go to the kitchen, and I see a black cake covered in a thin white layer of frosting. I check the time and realize she barely waited a couple of hours before decorating. Mama, for the first time in her life, didn't wait five days. She cuts a piece for us and takes a bite first. It's not as good, she says, taking a second bite, but you should try it. Juliana Lachance with Glorious Life of Crime. Presencias. This was published at Shenandoah. I always thought that my parents' story was going to end differently than the rest of our families. 
Papi had loved Mommy more than I had seen even in movies. When Mommy had a problem, she didn't go to Abuela or to her friends. She went to Papi and cried in front of him, closing the door to the rest of us. She was the strongest woman we knew, but to Papi she was herself. To me, their love was what was going to protect them from the curse. But in Bogota, Colombia, their love was what made them more appealing victims. Papi was good with business, and because of that, we never lacked for anything. That's how Papi and Abuela said it. They never admitted we had money, lots of it, just that we were comfortable or that we had more than enough. At breakfast, Papi ate his food methodically, quietly, savoring the last minutes of peace before he had to be an important man out in the world, a man at risk. When I think about Papi, I always think of him like that, quiet and methodical. There's three generations of women in this living room, Mami, Abuela, and me. All the men are now gone because of the violence. Abuela serves us valerian tea in the china she reserves for weddings, and, I guess now, for funerals, too. Mami has dark stains under her eyes from crying with mascara on. She started crying at the funeral in the early afternoon, and it's nighttime now. Abuela sighs and opens her mouth, but she closes it again. Nada que decir. We all know it. It's best to keep our mouths shut. We used to live with Abuela in her big house when I was a little girl. She used to say to me that we lived with her because my parents were still learning. Learning about what, I would ask. But she would ignore me or say, learning, and leave it at that. After we moved out to our own apartment, we met her often for lunch or for tea when we went shopping. I figured my parents' lessons weren't done because we visited Abuela often. I played with her china dolls and wandered through the hallways full of pictures of men I would never know. I would look at one photograph of Abuelo and study his nose. It was my nose. His curly dark hair was my hair. No one ever talked about the resemblance. Now, sitting in the room where we mourned Poppy, I wonder if talking about the parts of the men that had been passed along to the daughters was too painful. The room is so silent we can hear each other breathing. We can also hear the thunder from outside and the rainwater washing the blood away from the bodies. I imagine a river of blood staining the streets of Bogota. Although I don't want to, my mind drifts to the radio program that I sometimes hear at night when I can't sleep. The families of missing people record messages for the sequestrados. The wives and the children often say how much they miss their fathers and their husbands and how many rosarios they're praying for them. They tell them about all the things that are waiting for them when they return home. Most of the time, they tell them about how everything is okay and about how they must not worry. I think about the program, and a part of me feels guilty that I am relieved that Poppy didn't die in the forest. Poppy died in the city, half an hour by car from us. In a way, Poppy didn't die so far away. I start sobbing, and Mommy puts a hand on my back and caresses it. Mommy joins me and starts sobbing, too. She doesn't want me to suffer alone. Mommy holds my hand and squeezes it tight, so tight, I wonder if she's doing it to wake herself up. She holds my hand as if she's telling me, I'm here. We are here, even if we don't want to be. She stops crying when she hears Abuela speak. A curse, Abuela says. All the men in our family just vanish. Lagueria men are not ghosts, Mommy says more firmly. Guerilla men are real, Mommy, and they are after us. Not curses, Mommy. Men.
The truth is, men in our family don't vanish. They get killed. We claim the bodies, and we keep their shirts after they die, and we smell them. After a while, we only vaguely remember what they smell like, but their closets keep the musky traces. We hold on to their clothes like our most priceless possessions, and we pass them from generation to generation. The women who survive meet their ancestors through the hints of perfume still preserved in the pockets of their shirts. My family passes a lot of things from generation to generation. My family passes money. It passes fear. It passes violence, too. Men in my family get killed in the dark, in parking lots waiting for their cars, and in the street away from anyone who can hear them or wants to hear them. Men in my family fear the guerrilla, fear Pablo Escobar. Men in my family fear whoever is going against men with power. Before they were all killed, despite the rumors of the family curse and the violence, they used to say that our country is crumbling because of those men. Men in my family were too courageous for their own good. Their chests were filled with a pride that didn't let them leave the houses that had belonged to their families for generations, their cities and their lands. Men in my family were too attached to something, and now I wonder if that was worth defending. To Abuela, the men in the family that die become presencias, entities that linger. She told me once, when Mami wasn't around, that she was sure Abuela was a presencia and not a ghost. He only visited her once, but she would sometimes feel him around the house, a humming sound, a whisper, during the times when she felt like she couldn't keep going. She knew it was a part of him that remained, sometimes playfully touching her feet at night so she would think about him when she woke up. The difference between a ghost and a presencia, she said, is that a presencia doesn't leave. It's attached to you. It lives as long as you live, no matter where you go. We're in Abuela's house. It's in Chapinero Alto, a barrio that used to be exclusive, but now is populated by students and young professionals. Abuela says that the young people don't let her sleep some nights. They blast rap music and have loud conversations on balconies while smoking and throwing the butts of the cigarettes on the street. Now that Papi is dead, she'll probably come and live with us. We'll sell the house where Abuelo died and where Abuela grew up. We will make room in our apartment to fit the men's shirts. Abuela stands up to get some food. Soft stuff, she says, for your stomachs. The soup is clear and with lots of potatoes, just the way I like it. It smells like fresh coriander and parsley and mint. Eat, she commands, and I put a cracker in my mouth to please her. Mommy doesn't even look at Abuela in her silver tray. She doesn't even look at me when I chew the cracker. I take a spoonful of soup. It tastes like minty herbs and chicken. I wonder if Abuela put mint in by mistake. Abuela grows nervous with the silence. I can tell she wants to say something, but is biting her tongue. She knows Mommy would protest. Mommy doesn't believe in presencias or in loving ghosts. She thinks loneliness is messing with Abuela's head. I wonder, sitting in between them, how much it is messing with mine. The night your abuelo died, he visited me. She knows to address me instead of mommy. I knew he was dead before they called. I felt it. Mama, mommy says, please don't. Abuela says men in our family visit their wives the night they are killed. It's tradition. They tell them what happened and they prepare them to live a life without them. When he visited, Abuelo told Abuela that he had a secret account where he had enough money for them to live comfortably. 
Bisabuelo told my Bisabuela where in the house he had hidden some money, too. The men also told their wives that they loved them, that they thought about them in their final moments, more than they thought about their children. They told them about their dreams, what they wished they'd done in life. Men in my family tell their wives that they are sorry they left them alone, that they were always scared of the family curse. Men in my family only visit the women the night of their funerals. Tonight, Abuela began. Stop, Mommy said. Please stop. But it was nothing she could stop, really. It was tradition. We were supposed to be paid a visit that was meant for our survival. Except Mommy worked as an executive for a bank, and she had her own money. Except this wasn't our house. Except Papi never believed Abuela when she talked about Abuelo's ghost. It was grief, Papi would say. Abuela is the most sensitive woman I know. Mommy turns to look at me and asks, Would you sleep with me tonight? I see in Mommy's eyes that she is scared. Scared, perhaps, to live a life without Papi. Mommy did not ever let me see the doubts in her eyes until now. I am older now than Mommy was when Abuelo died. I like to think that I see things more clearly and that I am able to be there for her. I am able to do what Papi would have wanted me to do. Abuela looks at Mommy one more time and leaves the room without saying goodnight. The sheets feel icy cold. Although Mommy turned off the lights, I know her eyes are wide open. I hear humming sounds drifting from the door. I feel the sounds floating on the air getting closer and closer to the bed. It's the wind hitting the windows, Mommy says softly. Go to sleep. The room gets warm despite it being a cold night. I turn to the side and I think about Poppy. What were his last minutes like? Was he afraid? Did he want us to grieve him? The police found Poppy in the street, covered in blood from several gunshot wounds. When they came to us, Mommy and Abuela told them about the guerrilla, how they'd been chasing our family and our money for generations, how they sometimes kidnapped our men, and how months or a couple of years later they would be found dead. The day that Abuela was killed, Abuela felt someone was in the house. She felt something behind her back, looking at her, wanting to touch her. Abuela told us that she called Abuela's office to see if he was okay, but he didn't pick up because he was busy. She heard the calm voice of his old trusted secretary assuring her that he was okay. Abuela went outside and did the shopping. The night that Abuelo died, Abuela's sorrow was different than Mommy's. She had known that something was about to happen. Abuela cried and mourned Abuelo the day he died, but her tears were quieter. It was like it was written, she said. Abuelo's death was something she couldn't control. I wonder if Mommy heard or felt something that morning before going to work. Was Poppy acting any different? Was the air in the kitchen heavier? I turned my head to look at Mommy. When would be the right time to ask those questions? I put a pillow on top of my head to drown the noise that has now traveled to the bed on Mommy's side. I close my eyes and think about what Poppy would say to Mommy if he visited. Maybe he would tell her about that time when they visited Paris with me when I was a little girl and fed me warm baguettes and taught me words in French that they were just learning themselves. Papi always said that Paris was his favorite vacation because I was little and still did what they told me. I close my eyes, knowing that this visit is not for me. I feel tired and calm. I feel the cold air brushing my cheeks, lulling me to sleep. The air carries a vague scent of musk that takes me back to Papi's shirts. I think about Papi touching Mommy's knee like he used to at dinner. I think about him telling Mommy that she could live a life without him, 
that there is a life worth living even if they were not together, because he would always be there, watching. I can no longer hear Mommy sobbing. She's sitting up now, facing the door, waiting as she did in life for Papi to come back from work, waiting as she did in the kitchen with the rosary close to her chest. Mommy waits because the love that she feels for Papi is telling her to sit up and listen. In the dark, I'm waiting too. Young, wild, and depraved You always deserve so much better So many nights on the side of the
That was Juliana Lachance with Freedom. Sinaga. This was published at Smoke Long Quarterly. If you wanted to know the way my abuelo, Pescador Tiraba Suraya, every morning just before dawn to not wake up the fish, I wouldn't be able to tell you. I grew up apart from him in his ways and abuela's ways. Abuela, who would be always in the kitchen, starting the coffee in the greca, and moliendo maize for the arepas. And I wouldn't know about them because I didn't ask. And because I didn't ask, nobody told me. En boca cerrada no entran moscas, and so on and so forth. So I didn't ask about Abuelo, and I didn't ask about the night sky in the Sinaga that had the most stars in the world because the light company in the village was so bad, quote, the light doesn't reach us. I would hear Abuelo say in the dreams I would have about them. The light doesn't reach anyone in this family, he would say, and I would keep on dreaming about them, while also dreaming about things that Abuela did that I could never do, like sewing, boning a chicken, cooking a mojara, and tending to a family. I wake up and water the few plants I have, and think about the dreams I had the night before, where Abuelo tells me the reason I can't see stars in New York is because they're hiding. They don't want to see what the world has become. The world is so far from its beginnings, you see, he says, and draws a line on the ground with a stick. Says it's supposed to tell me everything I need to know, but I don't see anything. I rub my eyes and realize I'm dreaming again. So I wake up and remember that I have his hollowed eyes his big teeth, the dimple in my right cheek that is supposed to bring me luck, and my abuela's stubbornness. I remember that when I hear the tukutuku of tambores while walking down Flatbush Avenue, I can't help but tap my feet and think about La Cienaga, the place I see in dreams, and the pictures of the ancestors my mom burned before I was born, and before she married my father, and when she swore, she swore she would never go back to that pueblo de mierda, not a chance. But me, Me who gets lost most nights in New York while walking familiar streets? I would. Me, the one who eats different variations of sad rice with peas or cerdo or whatever cut of meat is discounted at the supermarket, would go back in a heartbeat. Because you can't find fresh fish in New York like the one you would find at the Cienaga. Because there's no chance I'm going to see a clear night like the ones my abuelos used to have all the time. Because I dream of them, and when I do, abuelo reminds me that family, even after generations have passed, has a way of coming back into the light.
That was Juliana Lachance with Strawberry Shake. I hope you have enjoyed listening to the work of Maria Alejandra Barrios. Uh, you can find more of her beautiful writing at her website, mariaalejandrabarrios.com. That's M-A-R-I-A-A-L-E-J-A-N-D-R-A-B-A-R-R-I-O-S.com. I guess it's time for a little mazé, and I have a snack size interview for you with our featured musician, Juliana Lachance. Juliana Lachance is a painter, musician, filmmaker, and artisan spanning many creative genres. Through visuals and sound, she creates worlds within her music and paintings with the desire to spark the viewer's imagination and sense of childlike wonder. Inspiration for her art comes from meditation and her life's work to create beauty in the world. 1. What is your earliest memory of a meal? Banana almond smoothies my mom would make for me, and eating dinner at grandma's on Sundays. 2. What is a bandura and how is it played? Where did you first hear one and where did you get yours and learn to play? The bandura is a stringed zither-like harp from Ukraine. The version I play was modernized during the Soviet Union. With the left hand, you play the bass, while the right hand plays the treble. I have had many banduras over the years. The one I play now I bought off of Kiji and is the bandura I wished I had when I was a kid. 3. What is your songwriting process and creative practice like? What is the relationship between your music and painting and film? What projects are you working on right now? My songwriting process is cathartic. I do a lot of meditation to get into a flow state so that I am ready when the music, the art, or the inspiration for a film comes through. At the moment, I am at the final stages of my new album. I just learned bass and started a punk band with my partner who plays the drums. I am painting large-scale acrylic pieces. I am creating a calendar coloring book. This year, I bought a new camera and started a black-and-white photography series. I'm using this new camera to direct and produce a short film based on nature's seasons and cycles. Later this year, I will be releasing an oracle deck. There are many more projects, and I am learning the virtue of patience and discipline. 4. What are your five favorite words associated with red? Five favorite words associated with yellow? With blue? Red. Cardinal, strawberry, cherry, passion, warmth. Yellow, my favorite color of the moment. Happiness, spring, lemons, bees, 
dandelions. Blue. Relaxation, sky, creativity, water, magic. Five. If you were painting a mural of your current obsessions, where would you paint it and what would be in it? I am currently obsessed with symbolism in nature. I would want to paint a mural symbolic of the province of BC with stellar jays, a spirit bear, great evergreen trees, mountains, and Pacific dogwood flowers. I would paint it in downtown Ottawa, where I am currently living. Bonus. If you were a stuffed animal, what would you be? I would be a life-size stuffed cat with magical eyes and long gray and white hair. Thank you so much to Juliana for answering those questions and sharing her music with us. You can find out more about Juliana and her work at her website, julianalachance.com. That's J-U-L-I-A-N-A-L-A-C-H-A-N-C-E.com. And you can find and buy her music at julianalachance.bandcamp.com. Mousy, yeah, it's good to be back. Uh, yeah, it is the new moon. Oh, uh, here I brought these for you. Oh, li- lilacs, they're my favorite. Oh, thank you, Mister Bear. That's so kind of you. Well, they're they're in bloom right now, and uh, they just smell so delicious. And uh, I don't know if you had any up here um, in your apothecarium on the moon. Uh, but uh, even if you did, I figured you might like some more. Well, I, you can never have too many lilacs, Mr. Bear. Um, oh, these just smell divine. Thank you. Um, I've been obsessed with lilacs lately. It's like you read my mind. Oh, uh, yeah. I mean, you know, when, when you step outside and, and smell them every time you, you know, walk by a lilac bush, uh, it's, it's pretty delightful. And uh, it's, you know, just a short time of year. I know. I'm, I've been enjoying it. Um going to put these in some water right away. Um, actually, I've been, would you like some um, lilac water? Uh, yeah, I would love some. I, I made a cold infusion. Um, I just put a, a bunch of lilac blossoms in a jar with cold water and, um, and I just put it in the refrigerator and left it overnight and then it's just this beautiful fragrant water. Here, have a glass. Oh wow, this is this is delicious. Thank you, Miss Mousy. Yeah, isn't it great? Um, I like to do a short hot infusion too, just like you'd make a regular um cup of tea. Well, you know, I make my cup of tea by the quart jar. Oh yeah, I know, me too. And you know, you just put the um lilac blossoms in in a jar and put the hot water over them and cover them and and steep them for a bit, and then you have a lovely lilac tea. Um, but I just thought the cold, the cold one right now is very refreshing because it's it's kind of warm in the apothecarium at the moment. Yeah, this this is perfect. Um, you know what else have you been doing with lilacs? You know besides smelling and enjoying them. I I remember uh, growing up, I had a book uh, with scratch and sniff, and there was a lilac scratch and sniff there, and uh, I did a lot of scratching and sniffing. I can imagine um, lilacs are just kind of intoxicating, aren't they? Um, well, 
another thing I did was start a lilac-infused honey. I know we've talked about infused honeys before. Um, basically, any anything fresh that you think would be good in honey, just put in a jar and pour some honey over it. I mean, it's that easy. Leave it for a few weeks, strain it out, and um, and you have a, a fabulous honey. I've never tried it with lilacs before, so um, this is the first time I'm really excited. Oh, me, me too. Maybe, um, maybe I'll, I'll, I can come back and and try some of that honey next time. Oh yeah, that would be great. Um, and but something you can try now if you'd like a little snack. I also made some lilac-infused butter, and I just took the blossoms and just stirred them into some softened butter, and it's just delicious on toast. Uh, would you, would you like some with your lilac water? Well, thanks, Miss Mousie. I'd love some. Boy, this is a real treat. I got hungry reading all that beautiful work. Uh, so it's it's nice to have a little snack now. Yeah, um, the work was just beautiful and intoxicating too. So I think lilacs are the the perfect accompaniment for it. Yeah, I I agree. Um, oh, uh, you know, last time we were reading about Betany from uh. Maud grieves a modern herbal. Uh, what does what does Maud have to say about lilacs? Anything? Oh well, let's let's look it up. It's a very big book, if you remember. It's very heavy, and like to remind your listeners, I'm a two-dimensional, hand-drawn mouse studying herbalism. Well, Maud. I hope she doesn't mind if I just call her by her first name. Maud has a very short entry on lilacs. She actually doesn't have much to say about them. Um, da, da, da. Well, apparently back back then they worked with lilacs a lot as a vermifuge and a febrifuge. Oh, what what are those? Well, a vermifuge is something that destroys or expels parasitic worms, and a febrifuge is um, something that helps bring down fever. So I can't really speak to that because I don't have worms or a fever right now, but um, I I do find lilac tea to be uh, very uh, relaxing and aromatic and refreshing. Yeah, this this lilac water is very refreshing. Uh, it it tastes like the smell of lilacs. Yeah, doesn't it? It's funny how smell and taste get all mixed up like that. Um, here's here's your toast and lilac butter. Um, I do hope you enjoy. Oh, I'm I'm sure I will. You know, if you want something stronger than um, lilac water, Mr. Bear, I also like to put uh, lilac blossoms in in wine, like a nice glass of cold white wine. Um, I find that very pleasant and refreshing. Um, you can just eat the blossoms too. Um, they're a little, they taste a little bitter, but you know, I encourage people to just try things and see, see how they taste for themselves. Um, just remember to, you know, not pick lilacs that have been sprayed with chemicals or pesticides or anything, but hopefully your listeners, if they're growing lilacs, aren't, aren't using any chemicals at home. Yeah, I, I hope not. We've we've talked about that a lot before, you know. Uh, just just say no to pesticides. Hopefully, people aren't using pesticides at home or at work. Um, but uh, I I'm inspired by uh, all this lilac loveliness, uh, Miss Mousy. Um, what well, do you have any other other plans? 
Well, those were all my experiments so far, Mr. Bear. Maybe your listeners have experiments of their own to share. Um, but uh, uh, I think we should go enjoy our, our toast and tea and wine before you have to get back and finish the show. Well, I'll, I'll drink to that, Miss Mousy. Juliana Lachance with Satan's Choice. And that's the show. I hope you've enjoyed. Thank you for spending time with me in the Violet Hour. And thanks to Maria Alejandra Barrios and Juliana Lachance. And uh, go out and uh, gather yourself some lilacs and be kind to each other. I'll see you back on the full moon. Bye. Theme song and show music by Sugar Whiskey. 
Mr. Bear and Miss Mousie believe in radical love and kindness, in mutual aid, and empowering ourselves and our communities. Together, we can dismantle the white, racist, colonizing, misogynistic, capitalist, homophobic, transphobic, ableist patriarchy. This podcast was recorded on Potawatomi, Kickapoo, Miami, Sioux, and Peoria land. Text your zip code or city comma state to 907-312-5085 and find out whose land you're living on. Uh, You can also go to land.codeforanchorage.org for more information. There's also a helpful map at native-land.ca. This is just the first step in developing a land acknowledgement. Let's learn our history and honor the land and indigenous peoples, past, present, and future. This podcast was produced in collaboration with the Boston Free Radio Podcast Network, part of bostonfreeradio.com and Somerville Media Center, Somerville's longest-running public access media center that enables a vibrant and diverse community to express its creativity, explain its ideas, share its cultures, and foster the individual right to freedom of speech. Learn more about Somerville Media Center at somervillemedia.org or check out some of the other amazing Boston Free Radio podcasts and radio shows at bostonfreeradio.com. Thanks for listening.